people can do amazing things, walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Very good evening to you. Welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists on BBC Local Radio across the Eastern Counties. With me, Dr Chris, and with Dr Sarah. Hello. This evening, one of the most famous UFO, well, events of all time is under the microscope because it's 25 years this year since Rendlesham. And Rendlesham's a forest in Suffolk, and it, pay, it played home to potentially uh, a close encounter of the third kind. Possibly not. It could have been explained on the basis of observations that were fooling people because people thought other things that were going on were aliens. What really happened that night? Well, we know that some pretty senior people in the military got pretty scared, so something must have happened. But what exactly? Well, here to help us out with it this evening from the MOD is Nick Pope. Good evening, Nick. Good evening. Nick will be joining us shortly. If you'd like to share with us your UFO stories or you have a, a stance on Rendlesham, give us a call. Have you seen something you can't explain? Nick's here in the studio and he's going to debunk your stories or he's going, to sh- he's going to tell you how you could go about investigating whether what you've seen is for real. 08459 25 2000 is the phone number. Or you can email us chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, from the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge, Lisa Jardine Wright's come in as well, and she's going to help us talk about some of the space science aspects of maybe close encounters of the third kind and other aspects of space science. Good evening, Lisa. Hello. Thank you for coming in. One other interesting thing that's going on is that Mars is closer than it's ever been before, and we're going to be asking her about that shortly. If you've got any science questions, anything to do with science, technology and medicine, then I'm quite happy to tackle those for you. As I say, email me as well, chris at nakedscientist.com. Sarah, what else is coming up tonight? Thanks, Chris. As Chris said, from today, Mars is going to be extremely close to the Earth and it's going to stay that way throughout November. So find out what we'll be able to see from Earth using our telescopes and from observatories. Also, Chris is going to be talking about a new breathalyzer that can detect people who have handled explosives in the fight against terror. And, of course, we'll be running our usual competition, Fact or Fiction, to win two fabulous prizes. In 1908, something called the Tunguska Fireball that um, hit an area of forest in a remote part of Siberia the size of Greater London. Scientists are only just discovering what might have happened. And we've got two copies of an exciting book that's just been published called The Story of the Tunguska Fireball by an author called Surendra Verma. Um, He's going to be on the show later talking about his book. 
And lastly, we've got the Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD, worth up to £100 to give away. Now back to Chris to find out how you can win these exciting prizes. It's very simple. We give you three easy science facts and you have to tell us whether you think they're true or whether it's something that we made up earlier. If you get tonight's top score, then you could walk away with one of those two fab prizes. And... Also, poised now in Rendlesham Forest is naked scientist Anna Lacey. We've let her wear clothes this evening because it is looking a bit on the chilly side. We'll be going to Rendlesham to talk to her and find out what the story is down there. Keep your UFO stories coming in. The phone lines will get busy, so call now to avoid disappointment. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Dr Chris and Dr Sarah here with you until 7, talking this evening with Nick Pope from the Ministry of Defence about the UFO story and the we're paying homage to the 25th anniversary of something very bizarre, a close encounter of the third kind perhaps that occurred in Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk. Your UFO stories are needed. 08459252000. Now, uh, there's an interesting development this week in the fight against terror because a chap who was working over in the States, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and his name is Michael Phillips, developed a machine called Heart's Breath. And this machine monitors your breath for signs of diseases. In fact, it was originally put together to look for signs of people rejecting a heart transplant or even people who had lung cancer because there's evidence now that if you have tumours, these tumours produce substances which have a very specific smell fingerprint. And if you know how to look for them, then you can find these these tumours by looking in clinical specimens to see whether or not they're there. And in fact, there was a study done recently using dogs to smell urine to see if people had bladder cancer. Well, that's what this machine was originally designed to do to sniff people's breath and see if there was any trace of inflammation caused by a lung cancer so this guy michael phillips wondered could it actually be used also to find whether people had been touching explosives because explosives are volatile compounds and they go very easily through your skin they dissolve in fatty layers in the skin get into the bloodstream and you can then breathe them out so can you actually detect these things from people's breath and therefore find out who's been touching explosives? Well, he did a simple experiment, just asking people who he knew would be handling ordnance in their day-to-day job, people who were handling TNT and dynamite and things like that, and his machine managed to detect them. And so what this suggests is that it might be possible now to br- li- quite literally breathalyse terrorists or potential terrorists or terror suspects to see if, although they say not, they've actually in the previous few days, maybe a few weeks, I don't know how long this is going to last for, that requires checking and experiments, but to see if they've actually had any contact with explosives. Sarah. Thanks, Chris. I've got an email here from Christiana from Chico in California, um, and she says, I've got to say that I'm a Naked Scientist podcast groupie, can't get enough. My question for you is, how can I stay in one room and study or read and relax all day long and nothing seems out of the ordinary? But my bedroom always smells funny in the morning after spending the same amount of time in there. It's that funny sleep smell. Is there some sort of chemical thing that takes place while I sleep, or do I emit something while sleeping that has an aroma different than the normal daily scent of, well, me? I've been curious for a while. Hope you can help. Thanks, Christiana. Well, well, thanks very much, Christiana. It's an interesting concept, your room smells. Uh, do you have this problem? Uh, yeah, I guess if the window's shut, it does stink a bit, doesn't it, in the morning? Well, what do you think her reason for that is? I reckon it's probably something to do with some of the gases that, that human beings You're judging her by your own uh, Coming up and down, I reckon. Well, I was thinking about this. When you go to sleep, of course, the one thing that does happen is your saliva supply dries up. 
and saliva is really important because it contains substances which switch off bacteria and your mouth is uh, don't go kissing anybody after this your mouth is a seething mass of bacteria and some of them produce compounds which are, contain a lot of sulfur and those sulfurous compounds are quite whiffy and I think therefore when you go to sleep that your breath gets quite smelly and I think the reason her room's a bit funky when she wakes up in the morning is because she's been breathing out with very dry mouth lots of bacterial action going on and it just makes it a bit smell and sta- smelly and stale Maybe a bit of garlic as well if she'd eaten garlic the night before. Now, uh, a few weeks ago we were talking about the subject of Red Sky at Night, Shepherd's Delight, and we were, we were discussing about uh, where this idea could have come from. And I'm very grateful to James, uh, James Smith, who sent me an email to say uh, he reckons he, he knows the answer. Um, he suggests that you can find out something about this in the Bible, because in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 16, verses 2 to 3, he says, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Uh, When it's evening, ye say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and lowering. So that goes to show that for 2,000 years or so, this saying has, or variants of this saying, have been in use. But where does it actually come from? What's the theory behind it? Well, the answer is that here in the Northern Hemisphere, the prevailing wind direction is usually going from the east towards the west. So if you want to have a red sky in either the sunset or the sunrise, then there's got to be clouds on the horizon where the sun actually is. So if you think of red sky at night, shepherd's delight, then that's because the sun is setting in the west and the clouds, if they're, on, if they're red, they must also be in the west. And since the prevailing wind direction is going towards the west, that would kind of suggest that the clouds are being blown away, the rest of the sky is clear, and therefore, since clouds are associated with bad weather, if you've got a clear sky coming from the east, that's what you're going to get tomorrow. So red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Well, the reason for that would be the sun's coming up in the east, so the clouds would have to be in the east. And since they're likely to blow towards you during the day, bringing God who knows God knows what sort of weather, then red, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. So there you go. That, that seems to be a reasonable explanation to me. So thank you very much to James for sending that in. Dr Chris and Dr Sarah with you here until 7 o'clock. Join this evening by from Cambridge's, Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy, Lisa Jardine-Wright, and from the Ministry of Defence, Nick Pope. We're talking about UFOs, we're talking about strange sightings in the skies over this region and Rendlesham Forest, and shortly we'll be going to Rendlesham Forest to catch up with what Anna Lacey is finding out down there from some people that were there at the time of this mysterious landing. That's all still to come. If you'd like to talk about UFOs with Nick and to share your stories with us, 08459... 25 2000 is the number to call. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Lisa, thanks for coming in this evening. I've got this email here, but so just to pick your brains a bit. It's come from Jeff. Uh, he says, your show's great. I listen to the podcast uh, on a regular basis. And you talked about one, one in the past dropping an object down a tunnel which has been bored all the way through the earth. I've been in all-night debates about this. We've, we've envisaged this scenario where an object is dropped into a tube from one side of the earth to the other, which is it's heat and radiation shielded, and, and the person drops through. So he wants to know what happens when the person drops through. You know, do they come out the other side or not? But also what happens when they get to the middle? Because he's suggesting that when you get to the middle... Your, the effect of gravity would be different because there's, there's the, the world is all around you rather than you're standing on the surface of the world and it's attracting you. And he's also saying that he's a bit worried because in the centre of the Earth there'd be so much air pressure in his tube that you'd be squashed flat. What do you think about that? OK, so the first thing um, we need to think about is gravity itself. And um, gravity is 
when you're stood on the surface of the Earth, the gravity that's affecting you is from the whole mass of the Earth beneath your feet. So as you move towards the centre of the Earth, the amount of mass beneath your feet is decreasing. So when you get to the centre, if you were at the very, very centre, the force of gravity on you would be zero. But by this stage, you will have reached a velocity, so you will be you will pass through the uh, through the centre as you describe, and you will come out the other. You will pass through the centre, moving through the other side. But gravity is then above you, so gravity will be attracting you back in towards the centre. So you will oscillate. So you'd literally bounce back, bounce and backwards forwards. and forwards between the two. Right, but he's saying eventually you'd come to a standstill somewhere in the centre. Would you agree with that? You'd have to assume that they'd lose some energy, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Eventually, and they'd eventually come to rest in the centre. If there's air around you as well, there's go- air would assume this isn't a vacuum because no. you wouldn't survive. So would go bang, yeah. you would have um, air all around you, and so there would be some air resistance, and so you would lose energy, and therefore eventually you would come to a standstill. Yeah. Well, he's obviously Jeff. This is Jeff Jones. He's obviously assuming there is air in the tunnel because he's saying the air pressure would crush you. But I don't agree with that. And you can tell me. If I'm right, because if you look at a deep sea diver, then for every 10 metres under, under the um, sea that they go down, they get the equivalent of the whole of the Earth's atmosphere on top of them again. And the reason that this isn't a problem for them is that the pressure is entirely uh, equalised because it's pressing on them in all directions. And so it's both inside and outside, it all equalises out. So I don't agree with Jeff that as you go down your tunnel with high air pressure, you'd be squashed. Do you think that's reasonable? Well, you've also got air pressure from the other direction as well. So there's air pressure below you as well as air pressure above you. So, um, and all around the sides of you as well. So I, I, I would have to think about it a little bit more, but I, I agree with you. I don't think you, you would be squashed. I think it's fair to say, though, isn't it, that uh, if this did occur, you'd probably get the bends because you'd be uh, flying out of the hole so fast. How fast do you think you'd be travelling if you fell down a hole like that to walk right down to the centre of the Earth? Because how long would a tunnel like that be? 10,000 kilometres or so? Um, well, the Earth's diameter is 6,400 kilometres. So to reach the centre, you'd, yeah, so you'd be to reach the centre, you'd be at 3,200. So... Um, Yes, uh, with an acceleration of 9.8 metres per second. So you'd be travelling pretty high speed by the time you got to the centre. Uh, and so you, you'd fly out the other side mm-hmm. at the same speed and therefore be a, quite a sitter for the bends. Absolutely. OK, there you go, Jeff. I hope that answers your question. I've got an interesting one here from the Philippines, actually. It says, hello there, Dr Chris. I've been listening to your podcast radio and I've instantly become a fan. My name's Christian Ananuevo from Manila in the Philippines. Yes, you're being heard on the other side of the world, somewhere near the tropical equator. I love how you guys answer trivial questions and there's also demarcations of what's fact from real. Uh, thank you for being so informative. Here's my question. Here in the Philippines, we have a delicacy called a balo, B-A-L-O-T, or balo. Does anyone know what this is? No. Okay, you, now, sick bags at the ready. It's no disrespect here, Christian. It's a half-incubated duck chick, okay? He says here, the fully formed shelled duck is cooked through boiling water, cracked open, and then eaten with vinegar and salt. I must admit that it really is very tasty. But what concerns me is the rising incidence of bird flu now getting to the shores of England. Have there, there have been no reported cases here in the Philippines yet, but I'm just concerned that is in an embryonic environment, is it sterile or is there a chance that my ballots might be infected too? And he'd said ballots, not anything else. Um, mm, OK, Christian, the, the, the answer to this is that... Although there's evidence that the bird flu virus that's causing a few problems around the world at the moment can spread around the body of the birds that it infects, there's not any evidence it can actually get inside eggs. But it does come out through the intestines, in other words, out the back end. So it's possible that the outside of your egg could get contaminated with some some viral particles. And so if you ate it raw, you could potentially contaminate things. But if you cook it properly, along the lines that you're suggesting... 
flu is just a bag of genes. It's just protein wrapping up a bag of genetic material. And so if you heat that up properly, it should just fall apart and neutralise it. So I don't actually think that there's any risk to your health. And I think you can go on enjoying your ballots or however you pronounce them uh, with, with no problem at all. So thank you very much for your email. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Thanks, Chris. Um, Lisa, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about Mars, because um, it, it's going to be closest to us than it's been for a while. Um, the last time it was pretty close to us was in August um, 2003. Um, now, we gather it's about 43.1 million miles away from the Earth, and that's a pretty small distance in space terms, kind of way for thing. Can we give people some idea of, of how far that is? Well, for example, um, the light from the sun takes eight minutes to reach us here on Earth. And the light from the sun to reach Mars would take a further, approximately about a further eight minutes as well. So it's, on average, Mars is about twice as far away from the sun as the Earth is. It's very difficult in in millions of miles to actually anticipate what that, how how far that actually is. But yeah, it's so hard to comprehend, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. Now it's going to look like a sort of bright orangey yellow star. Um, what's the best way to see it? Well, obviously, you can use binoculars and telescopes to see it, but Mars is actually visible with the naked eye. And if you look to, um, towards the sort of northeast, towards the east, um, you will be able to see Mars quite on a clear night very, very clearly. It will look very bright compared with the rest of the stars, and it will look slightly larger. Uh, it certainly won't look anywhere near the size of the moon, for example, but it will definitely look larger, very, very bright, and distinctively yellow-orange. Mm -hmm. Can you see anything, on, if you look at Mars, with, say your average cheap telescope, will you be able to actually pick out anything really spectacular to see on it because it's so close? You may be able to see um, shades of, of different colours, so, so the dark regions on the surface compared with the, the light regions, but it w you would have to have a very powerful telescope to distinguish anything greater than that. Um, but you would be able to make out different colourings, maybe. Mm -hmm. Because they were saying that um, Mars has the tallest volcano in the whole of the solar system. That's right. Three times the height of Mount Everest or something, Olymp Absolutely. Olympus Mons. Uh -huh. Do That's we know when it last erupted? Um, as far as I'm aware, the uh, volcanic activity on Mars, uh, there is no live volcanic activity on Mars now. Uh, we believe that Mars has cooled sufficiently, that um, the, it's obviously a lot further away from the sun, for example, the, than the Earth. Uh-huh. If you'd like to ask the Naked Scientists a question, 08459 25 2000. Dr Chris, that's me, Dr Sarah, we're here with you through until 7 o'clock taking your calls, anything scientific, and we're also taking your UFO sightings too. Catherine's in Hartford. Hello, Catherine. Hello. How are you? OK. And what can we do for you? Um, can, can you answer my question? Well, I'll certainly try. What is it? Um, what, how do butterflies' wings get all their colours? Ah, now that's clever. Well, if the colours were down to ink or pigments, if you keep something for a very long time, say you write on a piece of paper and you put it in the cupboard for many, many years, what happens to the ink? Um, it fades away. That's right. Now, if you go to the museums around the world, then hundreds of years ago people collected some amazing specimens of butterflies and moths and other insects that had some beautiful colours. And if you look at those today... What do you think they look like? Do you think they faded, or do you think that they look as spectacular as the day they were stored? They look as um, 
as a spectacular. Yeah, so that tells you that these aren't any normal kind of pigments. They haven't got ink in the wings of a butterfly. What they have got are very clever arrangements of substances which reflect and bend and, and, and affect light in just the right way using the structure of the shapes of what's in the wings to make those colours. It's what's called structural colour. It's not a dye or a pigment. They have special layers of cells containing special things that, that make those pigments. They don't actually have ink in their wings. They never fade. And the, the reason that they have those beautiful patterns is actually down to camouflage and defence. Because if a, butter, a butterfly is a very juicy snack for things like birds and bigger animals, and so they need to try and blend in with their environment. And one way they do that is by looking the same as their environment. They have wing colours that look very similar to the plants they like to live on. But other butterflies resort to, or that they have the idea, that attack is the best form of defence. And so what they do is to have butterfly or is to have shapes on their wings that look like a face have you seen a peacock butterfly which has got these two dark rings on its wings that look like two eyes yeah mm. well that the reason that they do that is so that the bird who looks at it thinks oh my god that's a huge great face that must be a massive animal i'm not going to go near that because it might eat me so that's why they have their interesting colours, and that's why they're the shape that they do and they achieve it not with inks but with what's called structural color so now you know a bit more about butterflies Thank you. How would you like to have a go at winning yourself either a book about this amazing fireball in Siberia or an Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD? I would like, yes, please. You want to have a go? Yes. All right, it's science fact or science fiction. You have to get these three questions as right as you possibly can, OK? OK. All right, I'm going to read you the question. You tell us whether you think it's science fact or science fiction and then Dr Sarah will tell you if you got it right or not. All right? OK. Here we go. The Eiffel Tower, do you know where that is? Yeah. The Eiffel Tower is about a metre shorter in the winter than in the summertime. Do you think that's f science fact or science fiction? Mm -hmm. Science fiction. Well done. That's absolutely right. The Eiffel Tower does grow and shrink with the seasons, but it's not, not as much as a metre. It's actually only six inches or 15 centimetres. And that's because the metal it's made of expands and contracts with temperature. Well done. One out of one so far. The human eye blinks an average of four million times a year. You blink four million times a year. Do you think that's true or do you think that's a bit of an over-exaggeration? What was the number? Four million. Science fiction again. Oh, bad luck. You do actually blink around 4.2 million times a year. It's amazing. Each time you blink, do you know how long a blink lasts? Um... Less than a second. Yeah, you're right. I, I should give you half a mark, actually, because you knew that. It's actually 0.3 seconds. It's a third of a second. So that's over 300 hours with your eyes closed every single year. Not just not counting going to sleep, either. OK, last question. Owls are one of the most intelligent of all birds. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Um, fact. Oh, bad luck. Contrary to their reputation for being wise, most of an owl's head is actually taken up by its large eyes and the brain is quite small. Um, so the animals probably rank amongst the daftest of birds. Catherine, you got one and a half. So at the moment, you're in the lead. Brilliant. Well done. Thanks for calling up. Yeah. See you soon. Bye. Bye. 
the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Sarah. Sarah, here with you on BBC Local Radio, right across the eastern counties, between 6 and 7 o'clock every Sunday. We're stripping down science, taking your science questions live on the programme. Just give us a call, 08459 25000, or email me, chris at nakedscientist.com, if you want to take part. Up for grabs this evening, an Encyclopedia Britannica DVD, that's worth about 60 quid. Uh, there's also the Tunguska Fireball, Serenja Verma's new book, which is all about that amazing thing that took place in Siberia uh, at the turn of the 20th century. And he's going to join us from Australia later to tell us a little bit more. Right. Also here in the studio this evening is Nick Pope, who's from the Ministry of Defence, and he knows quite a lot about this UFO story because he sat on the UFO desk at the MOD for quite some time. Good evening, Nick. Good evening. So tell us a little bit about this Rendlesham incident and what that was all about. Well... I used to run the Ministry of Defence's UFO project, and uh, seeing as we're on Naked Scientists, I, I should say that the, uh, the MOD's UFO project has some very impressive scientific credentials. It was set up by the Ministry of Defence's chief scientific advisor back in 1950, the great um, Sir Henry Tizard, uh, the great radar scientist. But for all the years that the UFO project has run, Rendlesham Forest has been our greatest and most important case. This is sometimes called Britain's Roswell. To give you the story in a nutshell, um, on the first night of activity, which was actually early in the hours of the 26th of December 1980, some United States Air Force personnel at the two bases of Bentwaters and Woodbridge in Suffolk saw lights in the forest... They went out thinking um, that a, an aircraft uh, from the base might have crashed in the forest. They didn't find a crashed aircraft, thank goodness. They found a landed UFO. And one of the people got close enough to this thing to actually uh, touch the side of this uh, craft, um, a metallic object uh, that had landed in a small clearing, and even to sketch strange... Uh, markings that he likened to hieroglyphs uh, that had been witnessed on the side of this thing. Now, word got around the base, and over the following um, uh, couple of days, it came to the attention of the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, and um, he was at a social function, and suddenly the doors burst open. Someone ran up to him and said, Sir, it's back. And Colonel Holt said, What? What's back? And uh, the person said, the UFO, sir, the UFO is back. Well, Holt, Colonel Holt, went out into the forest, in his words, to debunk this. He couldn't debunk it. He became a part of, of the incident itself, and he saw the UFO firing beams of light uh, down at, at the clearing. Now, they found um, indentations in the forest floor in the shape of a perfect equilateral triangle where this thing had apparently landed on legs and here's the crucial piece of of scientific fact for you um they went around those indentations with a geiger counter those readings were passed to the defense intelligence staff at the ministry of defense and they said not dangerous but ten times normal and they've seen those figures nick i have indeed yes i i I don't have them um but colonel holt uh, actually put this into a memorandum and, of course, he sent it to the Ministry of Defence, and we investigated. Intriguing. What do you think happened at Rendlesham that night? Well, Anna Lacey's down there now in Rendlesham Forest and poised to talk to some of the people that were there at the time. Anna, what do you got for us? Yes, that's right, Chris. I'm here right now in Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk, and I have to say it's pretty eerie. As we heard earlier, there was a UFO landing here 25 years ago, but today I've come to speak to some people who were actually here at the time. 
One of those people was one of the primary investigators on this case straight after it happened. Now, her name's Brenda Butler. She's from Leyston in Suffolk. And she's been coming to these woods every single week since 1979. What makes Rendlesham Forest such a fascinating place for you? Because it's the only forest um, around this area that have all the um, paranormal stuff that we see. What kind of paranormal stuff have you actually seen in Rendlesham? We've seen craft. Um, we've seen the greys, which are ETs. We've seen um, streakers, which are lights going across all over the place. And we've seen orbs of light. Now, you've actually shown me some pictures of these, and I can actually testify that there really are orbs and there are streakers in these pictures. Do other people come down here with you? Well, once a month, on the fourth Saturday of every month, we have a big sky watch, and there's up to about 20 or 30 people come down. They're all interested in the same thing. They've seen UFOs down here, they've seen the streakers, they've seen beings, and so they come from all over the country to come down here. Are there any other ways for people to come down and experience Rendlesham? Well, on the 25th anniversary, on the 27th of December, we're all meeting down here because there's quite a lot of people coming from all over the country. But we don't only walk on the UFO walk, which there's an awful lot of people come down here now and do. We walk all over the forest. And you're hoping to see something else maybe on the 27th of December? We see something nearly every night we come down here, so it won't be only on the 27th of December. Well, that was Brenda Butler from Leyston, and from what she said, it seems that Brendlesham Forest really still is active, even to this day, and that that event 25 years ago was not a one-off. But was it really aliens? I mean, could there be any other explanation? Well, also here with me is Vince Thurkettle. What were you actually doing here? Yeah, back at the time of this alleged incident, I was a harvesting forester for Rendlesham Forest. So I lived in the forest, which was brilliant, and I was here when it all happened. Did you ever come to the UFO site? Yeah, there were, there were odd rumours going about the forestry workers of a burnt area and stuff, and then about six weeks later, um, I was brought and shown the site. And I looked at this, what to me as a woodman, you know, forester all my life, it was just a simple clearing in the woods with the marks, three marks, where rabbits had scraped looking for roots or something. There were some chips on the trees, but it wasn't the impact of anything. It was a guy called Bill Briggs and marked the trees to be felled. And I went from extreme excitement, I was going to see a close encounters, to extreme disappointment that everything I was looking at could be explained by normal sort of forestry and woodcraft. But what about the lights, Vince? I mean, people saw lights that night. I think the lights are particularly interesting because we are in a part of the forest where the amazing coincidence that Orford Ness Lighthouse's beam shines into this woods, or at least it did 25 years ago. It shone into these woods and it was a brilliant pulsing light which looked as if it was in the trees. You know, that's a fact. Whether the airmen were fooled by that beam or whether they knew the beam was there and ignored it, that's been a point of debate ever since. But... If they weren't looking at the lighthouse beam and they were looking at some other vehicle, then we're asked to believe the huge coincidence that the vehicle they were looking at went off on the same bearing as the lighthouse and it was pulsing at the same rate as the lighthouse. You know, I find that a difficult coincidence. So why do you think Rendlesham is still so important and, in fact, will it be in the future? 
Yeah, Rendlesham will live and live. It's, it's reckoned to be the second biggest UFO incident in the world, and people love mysteries. And whatever actually happened here 25 years ago, something happened enough to make strong and intelligent men scared and write letters and everything. So, no, this is going to run and run. The mystery is, is um, embedded in our mythology now. Well, thanks for coming down here, Vince, and also thanks to Brenda. Uh, I think that's everything here from Rendlesham Forest. See what we think back in the studio, Chris. Thank you very much, Anna Lacey, our naked scientist who's clothed in Rendlesham Forest this evening because it's a bit on the parky side. It is the naked scientist, Dr Chris, that's me, Dr Sarah, here with you until seven, joined this evening by the Ministry of Defence's uh, past UFO desk official, uh, Nick Pope, and also Lisa Jardine-Wright from the uh, Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge University. If you have a space science question for us, 08459 25000, or a UFO story, or if you want to drop me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. So, Nick, what do you think about this whole story, but from what Anna's just told us about her experiences and, and chatting to Vince Thurkettle in, in Rendlesham? Well, it was interesting listening to Vince talk about the lighthouse. Um, certainly, I'm aware that uh, the lighthouse was visible through the trees in the forest at night back then. But the point is that all the United States Air Force personnel um, based at those two military establishments were well familiar with the lighthouse. They, they saw it every night. Uh, and the other thing is, I've spoken to a lot of the military witnesses about this, and they are, they're quite clear, and they actually give uh, compass bearings for this. We saw the lighthouse, and then we saw the UFO, and we had them both in, in vision at once. The other interesting point, uh, and I didn't mention this, is that um, personnel at these military bases um, phoned a nearby RAF establishment, a radar base, and they said, we've got a UFO right overhead. And uh, the duty operator at the time, who I've interviewed, uh, tracked an uncorrelated target for a few sweeps of the radar at precisely that time. So this thing, whatever it was, was tracked on radar too. So it all kind of ties up. Let's have a quick chat to Matthews in Kettering. Good evening, Matthew. Hello. How are you? Fine. And um, what's your question? My question is, um, where do you get all the information from all the movies and how do you know aliens are really real? I guess that's one for, your, for you, Nick. Well, that, that's a very interesting question. Um, sometimes people say that um, people who claim to have had UFO experiences, actually um, they've been watching too much science fiction. But actually I find that the, uh, the true position is... The exact opposite of that. Science fiction writers and uh, famous film directors actually go out and they talk to UFO witnesses about the sorts of uh, things that they've seen. The classic example of this is the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where Steven Spielberg, in researching that film, went out and he used uh, a, a chap called Dr J. Allen Hynek, as one of the consultants on the film. Now, Hynek used to run the American uh, government's UFO project, so the opposite, my opposite number, as it were. And uh, interestingly, right at the end of the film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when the mothership uh, comes over the base, um, Spielberg rated Hynek's contribution so highly he gave him a cameo role in the <laughs> film. He's the old guy with the pipe looking oh, right. upwards okay. at, at the UFO. So actually, science fiction writers and, and directors, uh, they get all their facts from uh, UFO research, not the other way around. Matthew, I hope that clears that one up for you. Okay. Do you, do you want to have a go at the quick, quick go at the quiz or not? No, I'm fine. All right, mate. Thanks very much for your call. 
Okay. See you later. See you. So Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Sarah here on BBC Local Radio right across the eastern counties, live until seven, taking your science questions and anything to do with UFOs. Nick Pope's here with us from the Ministry of Defence and Lisa Jardine-Wright is with us from Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy. And uh, don't forget what she was talking about earlier. Mars is closer than it's ever been before. Uh, well, at least not for a long while, so you can get some spectacular views of this red planet. You go out and you look towards the east at night times, as long as it's not cloudy, like it is a bit, bit this evening. But have a look, it's at it's, its closest point tonight. So get out there and have a look this evening. If you'd like to ask any, anything about science, technology and medicine, send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. Let's talk to Debbie, who's in Norwich. Hello, Debbie. Hello. Good evening. Welcome to the programme. Thank you. Tell us about your experience. Well, it was either 1993 or possibly 94. It was the, the, the shortest part, you know, the darkest part of winter when it was getting dark about half past three because I went out in the garden to um, collect the linen off the line. It was then damp. It was getting dark about three. And it was no sound. And I looked up and the, the sky was quite clear and there was this silver cigar-shaped object, you know, you hear people talk about... Um, it went overhead, like at the height of a reasonably low-flying um, aircraft. You don't think it was an airship or something? No. Why do you not think it was an airship? Because it, it sounds like it to me. It wasn't that shape. Mm. It, was, um, it was very thin, very horizontal, but very thin. And, and then I ran, through, I ran indoors and looked out the front, and it then went a lot higher. Did anyone else see it? Well, not that, but... At Shortly after that, in the local paper, there was a, an advert put in by some police from, I think it was King's Lynn in Norfolk, who had seen a UFO around the similar time, mm. and could people contact them. So I did. But what they saw was circular and had lights on. Um, but they actually contacted me. And, um, but what I saw was simply this um, very shiny, silent, um, very thin does that tally with anything you have on record for that era and this part of the country, Nick? Well, I think that um, clearly cigar-shaped objects are, are some of the most commonly uh, shaped UFOs seen, but also another shape of um, object seen quite a lot in the skies recently all around the world is large triangular-shaped UFOs. I think to a certain extent we've got to bear in mind that um, the shape that you will perceive something will depend on the angle from which you're observing it. Yeah. So these things can actually change shape uh, depending on where you're stood. And also, I don't know if you were looking at this thing through glass, but sometimes that can have a distorting yeah, effect. Outside. Oh, OK. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that the police uh, had seen this too. I mean, one of the well, great things... What they described was quite different, as it turned yeah. out. But, but yeah. But it's, it's, it's an interesting fact. When I was running the UFO project, um, reports from trained observers such as military personnel and police were very important. Debbie, we're going to move it on because we have, we have a quite a lot of calls, but would you like to have a quick go at the quiz? Go on, then. <laughs> In an electrical circuit, neutrons flow through the wires to carry the charge. Is that science fact or science fiction? Well done, that's absolutely right. Electrons, not neutrons, flow around the circuit to carry the charge. Car batteries contain sulfuric acid, Debbie. Fact or fiction? Fact. Well Stream done, very good. Two into the lead. A reaction between sulfuric acid and strips of lead metal produces electricity and charging the battery reverses the reaction, char storing the fresh charge. OK, so all on this one, Debbie. You're going to get three out of three if you get this right. The average hurricane measures at least 50 miles across. Fact or fiction? 50 miles across the average hurricane. Do you think that's true or false? Um, 
Yeah. Very good. Three out of three. <laughs> it is false. The average hurricane is around 300 miles wide. That's huge. But varies greatly and much larger ones are seen occasionally. Well done, Debbie. You're currently in the lead. Oh, All right. right. OK. Thanks for calling in. It's okay. been great to have you on the programme. Thank you. So Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Sarah, here with you until seven, discussing science, technology and medicine. If you want to put a question into the programme or you've seen something funny in the skies that you can't explain, 08459 2000. Nick, uh, Nick Pope from the Ministry of Defence is here in the studio taking your calls, as is Lisa Jardine-Wright from the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge. Now... In 1908, something very bizarre happened in Siberia, in Russia, because an area of forest roughly the size of Greater London was suddenly and catastrophically flattened. But what actually caused it? For a long time, it remained a big mystery. But we think we're getting close now, and Surendra Verma has written a book about this event. It's called The Tunguska Fireball, and we've got two copies of it to give away as our second prizes this evening, if you want to have a go at winning it. But Surendra is in Australia, and here he is to tell us a little bit more about his book. Good evening, Surendra. On 30th June 1908, an enormous explosion took place in remote Tunguska region of Siberia. In 1927, a Russian scientist was assigned to investigate meteorite falls in Siberia. So he went to Siberia and he talked to people over there. And from those accounts, he pinpointed the location of the explosion site and he saw an oval plateau bigger than the Greater London where the forest had been flattened, all the trees stripped of their leaves and branches. And he also noticed traces of intense fire that had extended some tens of kilometers in diameter. Well, this sounds terrible. I mean, was he actually sure it was definitely a meteorite, though? He, he actually went there four times, and he started looking for the crater formed by the meteorite and fragments of the meteorite in the crater. And in spite of all those searches, could never find any craters, any meteorite fragments. Have we got any clues as to what it really was caused by, or do scientists presently think that it was a massive meteorite uh, impact? Now we know a lot more about Tunguska Fireball, actually. Most of the scientists will bet it was an asteroid impact. Scientists have done a lot of uh, computer simulations, and they think the, the size of the asteroid was about 30 metres across, so small that it didn't leave any hole in the ground. And the explosion caused all the damage to the forest. So on the scientist side, we have got asteroid theories and comet theories. But on the other side, we have that Tunguska was mistakenly zapped by a laser beam sent by extraterrestrials from a planet 11 light years away from us. Well, that's some greeting card, isn't it, to decimate <laughs> an area of a forest the size of Greater London? <laughs> yes, of course. There must be friendlier ways to send an intergalactic message. Yes, but that's my interpretation of their theory. That's how I put it together. Surendra Verma, who is the author of The Tunguska Fireball, a book all about the investigation of this a massive and catastrophic explosion that decimated an area of forest in remote Siberia the size of Greater London. We've got a couple of copies of his book as prizes this evening. If you want to have a go at the quiz, 08459 25 2000, science fact or science fiction. Or if you want to send me an email about anything to do with tonight's programme, just email chris at nakedscientist.com. Lisa Jardine writes here from the Institute of Astronomy. How common are these kind of impacts and, and, are, and are these kind of impacts devastating in that way. Can we explain it on the basis of an impact like that? Absolutely. Asteroid uh, or comet impacts could make 
could make a huge um, a, a huge crater. Uh, in fact, Arecibo, which is the um, huge radio telescope in in America, that was that has actually been formed in a crater. Um, so there is evidence all over the Earth for previous meteor. Um, meteoric or comet impacts and also of course if we look at the surface of the moon for example or indeed the surface of Mars as we were talking about earlier um, there are a number of craters and in actual fact the moon actually protects us to a certain extent from from further impacts from asteroids and comets. So it acts like a sort of giant comet hoover? Yeah absolutely. (laughs) And most people thought that was an electrical shop in the the high street. (laughs) But uh, no it's it's quite interesting that to, to think that these things do come and smash into the earth but how regularly do they do it because presumably not regularly enough to alter the climate so catastrophically that we can't exist because we've been here for many millions of years we we think that an impact wiped out the dinosaurs what 60 million years ago or so. Yeah. Absolutely. I, it also depends on the size of the impact as well of course. Um things are entering our atmosphere and will burn up in the atmosphere before they actually reach the earth. So if an asteroid or a, or a comet is sufficiently small when it enters our atmosphere it will just dis- integrate on entry um, so the actual frequency of impacts within our atmosphere I'm, I'm not sure of the number but um, as I say it depends on the size certainly one the size uh, that would have been necessary to wipe out the dinosaurs is not a frequent occurrence Thank God. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Sarah here with you through till 7. Anything to do with science, technology and medicine, we'll take a question on that. Just email me, chris at nakedscientist.com or give us a call 08459 25 2000. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. David is in Essex. Good evening, David. Oh, hello. Thank you for joining us. What, what's your question? Uh, it's not a question. I'd like to tell you that there are such things as UFOs because I've seen one. Not, have you? Yes. Uh, not only have I seen one, so have 500 other people at the same time. When was that? Same time. It, was in, it was a Wednesday in August 1959. And tell us what happened. Right. I was 11 at the time. I was waiting to go to a secondary school. I was in the holidays between the time of primary and secondary school. And I was standing, we were bored stiff. There's me and my mate Gary standing on the balcony in a block of flats in Hoban. Now, actually in Hoban, at the time, they're closed down now, but there was two Ministry of Defence buildings along Theobald Road. One was called Astral House and one was called, um, I can't remember the name, it's Sentinel House. They were both big uh, Ministry of Defence buildings and we lived right sort of along Theobald Road on a block of flats. And I was standing on outside on the balcony talking to me, mate, and it was a brilliant sunny afternoon, five o'clock in the afternoon, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky, and I said, and all of a sudden the sun caught this thing, I said to Gary, what's that, Gary? He goes, oh, it's there, and it came over, it was like, um, it was like an airship, but it wasn't an airship, because it was solid, it was solid like chrome, like the scooters from mods, you know, in the 60s, you know? Ooh. Was it, it didn't look like a motorbike, though? It didn't look anything like a motorbike, it was 100 foot long. Right. Only 600 foot above us in a block of flats. It went over, and it was absolutely solid. There weren't any doors in it at all, and there was no worlds in it. It was that low you could see it. And in the front, there was two windows, and there were two spacemen in there. Let's ask Nick what he thinks, shall we? Nick, what do you think of this? Well, by a bizarre piece of synchronicity, I actually used to work in one of those buildings uh, at Astral House. Right. Um, although not in 1959, I hasten to add. That <laughs> so was you've a, aged well, a little, little, yeah, a little, <laughs> little before my time. I think, I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating um, encounter. What, to me, it illustrates is the fact that uh, far from this clichéd idea that we have of UFOs 
is being seen only, uh, you know, down a lonely country road yeah, late at really night, that, that UFOs can be seen and are seen uh, in multiple witness events right over our major cities, like London. Right, well, you know, if you were to National House, you know Hope in those days was a very busy place, and at five o'clock in the evening, everybody was pouring out of the offices. We saw it, went over the flats, there was no noise, engine noise at all. They, the, the spaceman waved to us, we waved to them, they waved back to us. It went over the block of flats, we ran down and into Old Gloucester Street and into, into, into Theobald Road, and it went across, as you know, Astro House, and it went across Southampton Row into Vernon Place, and at least 500, we were looking up, and at least, when you're looking up, other people were looking up, aren't they? Sure, yeah. At least 500 people saw it, and the man that lives next door to us worked for the Star newspaper, which in those days it was the Star, the News and the Standard. Three London- Did they write it up, David? No, listen to this, right? Well, we're a little bit short for time, so um, that's the only reason I'm just trying to hurry a little bit. Oh, no, yeah, I'll just tell you, they didn't... They, people saw it and reported it, and the, the man next door worked on the Star, and he was told if they report it, they will get the D-notice on it, which you know what D-notice is, yeah. will be arrested. Anyone that reports it will be arrested. Oh, I hope you, you don't get any comeback from talking about it tonight. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? OK, I'll have a go. OK, the skin of a hippo weighs over a tonne. Fact or fiction? Uh, fiction. It's actually true. It weighs a tonne and a half, in, that's imper- imperial tonnes, making up a quarter of its body weight, and it's an th- inch and a half thick in places. Nice one. You've got to get this right, David, OK? Right. Light from the sun takes about six hours to reach Pluto. Fact or fiction? Uh, I'll say it's fact. Good well call. done. Pluto's six billion kilometres away from the sun and light travels at 300,000 kilometres every second. To put that on in perspective, if you stood on the equator with a torch and switched it on, in one second the light would travel round the Earth at least six times. In other words, it's travelling about a billion kilometres every hour. That means to reach Pluto six billion kilometres away, light will take about five and a half to six hours to get there. Good work. Let's let's see if you can get yourself in the hat. Are you ready? Right. The hole in the ozone layer forms over the Arctic every winter. Fact or fiction? That's, uh, I think that's fact. No, it's actually um, the ozone hole over the Antarctic every summer. A whirlpool effect traps CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, over the South Pole during the winter when it's very cold and dark. And then when the summer comes and the sun returns, it triggers a chemical reaction between the CFCs and the ozone, making the ozone whole. The effect doesn't happen in the Arctic to the same degree because the shape of the landmass is different, so the whirlpool effect can't form. Thanks very much for your call, David. You've got one out of three. Might be just enough to sneak in there with one of the Tunguska Fireball books this evening. Right, OK. Thanks for joining us on the programme. OK, thanks. Right, bye. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. You're listening to the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Sarah with you until seven. Let's have a quick chat to Joan, who's in Berry. Hello, Joan. Hello. Thank you for coming on the programme. What's your story? Well, um, on that day, um, it had been. I was living then in Beeston near Deerham. Which day are you talking about specifically? The, well, on the um, 26th, on the oh, for the Rendlesham, the Rendlesham situation. Rendlesham. Yeah. Sorry, and um, it had been a terrible day, a lot of snow. So I knew there was no aircraft about, and um, the thing was that I took my two dogs for a walk, and with my little niece, and. As we were sort of just going through the village, uh, this light came across, came from t- 
from Litcham area, which was... Sort and of what sort of time of day was that, Joan? Was that the same time as things were going on in Rendlesham? It was... I'm not sure, but it was sort of tea time. Right. Would that fit, Nick? Well, the first report from Rendlesham was actually at about two or three in the morning on the Boxing Day. Was but, it? But there was, a, there was, to be fair, there was a whole wave of activity around yeah. that time. Yeah. So it could so- kind of fit, yeah. Joan. Yes. What, was your, what did you th- think when you saw it? What went through your head? Uh, I thought, gosh, what's that? Because it then stopped, and it wasn't very high. It wasn't much over the top of the um, roofs, you know, of the, the houses mm. there. And um, it was at the junction of a road, the, the road coming up from Litcham and the one sort of going through the village. Yeah. And it stopped, and it sort of swayed each way, and there were these lights on the, lights on the front sort of thing. As it looked as if it was looking... It sounds like a pretty typical UFO. And then it just went zoom across. Disappeared very, very fast. Sort of going towards, you know, sort of Woodbridge Way. Well, it's certainly on target to hit the right spot, wasn't it? Yeah. And we're going to move it on because we're a little bit short for time. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz, Joan? Um, no, that's all right, thank you. Righty-ho, thank you for your call. OK. It's been great to have you on the programme. Right, thank you. Nick, I mean, you're hearing a lot of people backing up this story... Have we actually moved any closer to understanding, or with your own researches through the archives and records, have you found anything that that would dissuade people away from it being a UFO? No, I think almost on the contrary. Um, And it's interesting you mentioned the archives. If you go to the National Archives, or if you go onto the Ministry of Defence website, you can find all sorts of information on UFOs, which is now progressively being released under Britain's Freedom of Information Act. And requests for information about UFOs, as far as uh, anything to do with the Ministry of Defence is concerned, it's, it's right up near the top of the league table. This is, this is what people want to ask the department about. So, I mean, the previous caller, for example, David from Essex, um, he can probably go to the National Archives. We've probably got a file on that incident. We've certainly got a file on the Rendlesham incident, and that's been released, and you can see it on the MOD's website. Let's let's talk just to Lisa for a second. As a, a space scientist, Lisa, obviously a lot of this stuff, as someone who's has access to materials and equipment that will enable you to probe right actually to the start of our own universe, pretty much. Um, how does this sit with you? Well, the question that springs to mind with with these sightings is where where are these you know where are these UFOs coming from? Which is um, which is the interesting question for me. For example, we're we're searching our own solar system to try and find life on other planets, and we have yet to find anything, even amoeba-like, let alone uh, intelligent life like our own. So I guess the big question for me is if these UFOs really are aliens or extraterrestrial life, where are they coming from? But I guess it's a question of maybe we just haven't looked hard enough yet because um, we haven't developed the tools to do that. Absolutely, and uh, there are a lot of astronomers that believe that somewhere within the universe that we may well find life, and it's not only within our own solar system, but we are now beginning to find planets. In fact, we found 170 planets around other stars in our own galaxy. So there's lots of potential for life out there, but as I say, we've yet yet to find any. The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Sarah, with you until seven. We're talking to Dr Lisa Jardine-Wright from the Cambridge Institute uh, for Astronomy at the University here in Cambridge, and also to Nick Pope from the Ministry of Defence. Our subject this evening has been life in uh, extraterrestrials, life in outer space, that kind of thing. If you'd like to get a call in, you have a few minutes left, 08459 25 2000. You can, of course, email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Right now, let's have a quick chat to Les, who's in Cambridge. Hello, Les. 
Hello. Thanks for coming on the programme. What's your point? Um, two sightings. Um, first one was a light, a bit bigger than orange. It would move very sharply. It didn't go out and come on somewhere else. It moved uh, what appeared to be just a few feet, uh, six, eight feet. Uh, then another completely different direction. Did that probably eight or ten times over a similar number of minutes at a guess. And uh, on another occasion, uh, there was two, what, what could be described as, as you would see, a car headlight through, through fog. When was this? Uh, the second one would be about 12 years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, these two lights, um, they're, but no sound, roughly 150 foot up in the air. Okay. They were sort of 30 or 40 feet apart, and uh, one would go on, one would go off. Well, look, we're really short for time, Les, so I'm going to ask Nick to comment very, very briefly on this, and then we'll give you a chance to have a go at the quiz if you want. Do you want to have a go? Yeah, I'll have a quiz. OK, well, I'll ask Nick to comment very, very briefly. Well, I, I can't really say much about the individual sighting. I mean, I investigated two or three hundred a year. Um, most of them have conventional explanations. Um, about five percent don't, and those are the ones I'm, I'm interested in. There's just tremendous interest in this subject at the moment, and it's no coincidence that the Science Museum at the moment, their big new exhibition, is called The Science of Aliens. So this, this subject really is in the public eye at the moment. Now, we're going to have to be really quick about this. Are, are you ready, uh, Les? Yep. OK. Hummingbirds can fly backwards. Fact or fiction? One. A hummingbird. True or false? True. Well done. They're the only animal known to be able to fly in reverse. The longest flight by a paper aeroplane lasted 26.7 seconds. That's roughly the time we've got left this evening. Fact or fiction? Uh, I think that's true. Thanks. Well done. And the final question, going for broke here, Les, spiders secrete special substances on their feet to stop them sticking to their own webs. Fact or fiction? True. Fact. No, not all of the strands of a spider's web are sticky. The spider knows which ones to avoid, preventing unfortunate accidents. Sorry, I, I binged and I should have bonged. I'm sorry about that. Ah. But you're still a winner. OK. All right, well done. Thank you very much for your call. Our other, our other winners this evening were Debbie, who also got three out of three, and Catherine. So well done to all of those. Thank you very much to everyone here at The Naked Scientist, Anna Lacey, who helped to produce tonight's show, to Nick Pope from the Ministry of Defence, and Lisa Jardine-Wright from Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy for coming in, and Sarah, who helped to co-present this evening. Next week on the programme, John Emsley will be in with an explosives extravaganza. Jacqueline Arkhaven and George Pendle will also be here to talk about fireworks and explosions, especially in time for November the 5th. So thank you for joining in this evening everyone at home giving us your time and listening to us it's been great to have you on the program thank you for your input any other stuff that you want to know about us is on our website nakedscientist.com now another reason to drop me a line is to take part in a new feature for the naked scientist because we want your science podcasts to include in our podcast and our science radio show the guy who's going to be sorting it all out with petro's podcast picks is naked scientist producer petro minch petro what are you looking for well, Chris, we're looking for, obviously, science-based podcasts, and we're offering podcast listeners the chance of their podcast being included in our podcast, which I think is a first. So we'd like podcasts maximum length of one and a half minutes. If it's any longer, we will listen to it, but obviously 
depending on what name we get, it might take a while. And obviously we want them to be preferably funny and they have to be something scientific. So if you're going somewhere exciting that's scientifically relevant to the top of a volcano or perhaps to the bottom of the ocean, get recording and then send it to us. Chris at NakedScientist.com. Petro will have a listen to it and the best ones will make it not only into the Naked Scientist podcast but onto the Naked Scientist live science radio show each week. So get recording now and send them to Chris at NakedScientist.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com.